Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the New York Times best-selling author of trashy romance novels, Mr. Ryan Siebold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It's going well, and might I just say that I am very honored that you, of all people, would choose to bestow us with your presence here, Mr. Ryan Siebold. I know you write with a pen name, but uh, yeah, from what I understand, you have a very strong following along uh, what I imagine is a, a nice, you know, 35 to 55 middle-aged woman crowd uh, with these trashy romance novels. Yeah. Well, um, that's why I moved to Florida. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell us about uh, how, you know, how'd you get started in this whole thing? Well, my, my pen name is Ralph Busconti. Maybe you've Ooh. heard of my work. Yeah. Absolutely. I have. I mean, you can't, you can't go into an airport without seeing a Busconti novel. Absolutely not. Yeah. I, uh, I made a pretty good name for myself, uh, under the Busconti label. You know, I just didn't want to, uh, these, these women, you know, they, they, uh, they read these books and they just go bananas and I can't have all this at my doorstep, you know, and, and, and invite this, here to my house, my domicile, my dojo. I uh, I've just <laughs> got to keep some peace and quiet. So I just I keep my Ryan uh, persona here separate uh, with all the podcast fans. That, you know, uh, hit me up constantly, and then my Ralph Busconti. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just oh, say yeah, it no, out loud. Totally, it's got a nice ring to it, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's just like those in the. It's just like the commercials that you hear uh, on the radio. Ralph Busconti. Yes. Like, dude, I hear that all the time. It's so much. acclaimed author, now, Ralph Busconti. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, Available there's a little bit where of, books uh, are sold. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, so here's what I would listeners. like to know, uh, you know, to let all of our listeners know. And and, and again, you know, you could, you could be very honest here. I happen to know for a fact that your readers do not listen to our program, so you don't have to worry about... Uh, you know, tipping any secrets or anything like they're where they are. They're listening to female oriented podcasts, most likely. Did you get into writing these novels for the money or for the women or for both? Or is it more like you had this storytelling power within you and you kind of wanted to to give something back to these women that you knew were kind of like lonely? And look, you know, here's like, the where did all of this kind of come from? I am nothing if not horny. I am horny, <laughs> and I needed an outlet. I needed to, something to put this out into the world. Uh, I wasn't sure, you know. Obviously, I'm not. I don't have the body for only only fans. So I went with the next best thing, where I could hide behind a pen name of Ralph Busconti, just to put it out Buscati. there again. Busconti. It's fun to say, and uh, yeah, it gave me a place to kind of just get all this out there. 
uh, out into the world for, for uh, it makes me feel better about myself that I could just, you know, get it all off my chest. Quite literally Absolutely. and figuratively. <laughs> Let me ask you, Jason, Indeed. have you read yes. my work? Uh, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, this, this might be a, a literary confession. Uh, yes, I have actually read many of them. Um, I believe my favorite is Porkin' Along the Seas 2. Yeah. That was a really good one. Um, I never, I never expected that, uh, the hog farmer would go on to become a pirate, let alone such a lusty pirate. And, you know, I mean, even as sort of like a straight white male, the way that you evoke, uh, these characters, uh, and their physiques, I mean, you know, even I was getting a little hot and bothered. I'm not going to lie. So uh, for anyone out there that has not read Mr. Biscontes work, uh, like I said, hogging on the seas. Uh, porking along the seas, rather, excuse me. Uh, the one, one is good, but it really sets up everything that's to come in the sequel. You know, it's kind of, uh, so, you know, the the second one's kind of like the two towers of the porking along the seas franchise. Yeah. Um, so, but still start with the first one. Um, if that doesn't do it, uh, it is serialized. Yeah. You got to start with the first (laughs) one and, uh, otherwise you're gonna have no idea what's going on. Like it's, it's a pretty in-depth plot yeah moist canyon uh was a great seller of mine i loved (laughs) moist canyon um that (laughs) that was that was actually a really beautiful tale like i that that one took some turns that i didn't quite uh see coming and then and and then the way that the twists and turns you had that beautiful metaphor where the twists and turns actually reflected the switchbacks of the moist canyon itself right it was beautiful yeah it was beautiful so for anyone who has not read, again, Moist Canyon or Porkin' Along the Seas, great place to start. In the meantime, we have a movie to go ahead and discuss with you this week. Ryan, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners what that movie is? Today's film is a nostalgia-soaked tale from 1987 called The Monster Squad. And I can't wait to talk hey! to you about this. This was a lot of fun to watch. A little outside our normal library that we would normally pull from, but uh, I'm glad we got to break up some of that. We've been doing, you know, a lot of heavy foreign films like La Ventura and Tokyo Story, and yeah. here we are with Monster Squad, and that's what <laughs> makes this show so great. Slides in uh, nicely right along Critters. Google has this described as five youngsters find themselves up against the combined might of Dracula, the Mummy, the Gill Man, and Frankenstein's monster who arrive in town in search of a magic amulet. Fantastic. From 1987, directed by Fred Decker. And written by the great Shane Black. So, yes, he had a lot going on in 1987. We're going to get to uh, to all of that, Jason. Indeed. But as always, I'm going to ask you, like I do every week, what did you think about this movie? Ryan, I am going to be very happy to tell you right after we listen to this trailer. And believe me, I'm going to be very happy to tell you. I'm about to gush because uh, I mentioned at the end of the last episode, this is a... This is a nostalgia glasses episode for old boy Jason here. We'll get into that right after we hear the trailer for the Monster Squad. You know who to call when you have ghosts. But who do you call when you have monsters? We're the Monster Squad. What's a squad? It's like my own advice, I think. They're young and inexperienced. They're a bit disorganized. Monsters are not real. We don't know that, sir. 2,000-year-old dead guys do not get up and walk away by themselves. But when strange things start happening in town... There's a monster in my closet. Ooh, look at that big, scary monster! 
They're the only ones ready to do battle. Looking down there is killing people. And if it's monsters, nobody's gonna do a thing about it but us. All right, Ryan. Now, so if you don't know me personally, if you're just one of our many wonderful listeners, and thank you so much for joining us week after week, you may not know that The Monster Squad is a very personal film for me. Now, a large part of this is because this is my Goonies, right? I've said this before, and I've come to find that there's actually a number of people where they feel the same way about this film. But whereas everybody else, you know, that I grew up with uh, when we were kids... Loved the shit out of the Goonies. Couldn't get enough Goonies. Goonies, Goonies, Goonies. Goonies never die. Truffle shuffle, all that sort of stuff. For me, that film was the Monster Squad. And it's funny because, you know, when I was younger, we had a local video store, right? Run by this chick, Dinah. I may have mentioned that on this show before. Maybe I haven't. And this was by far the film that we rented the most. For any of the youngsters listening out there, this was a period of time when you couldn't just buy films at all. Like, it's not like where, you know, with DVD, you can buy literally every single film save for the handful that don't make it to licensing issues. No, like, VHSs cost $100 and you had to have a license to be able to buy them. And so you couldn't just go out and buy a film. So we rented this one over and over and over from my local video store. And Ryan, I believe this is your first time seeing this film. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. And I'm I'm a better man for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So, you know, you don't have to go into the specifics yet. We'll get into that. But it sounds like you enjoyed it then? Yes, I did. That's awesome. I love that. Warms my heart to hear that. So Yeah, I mean, th- yeah, this was know. a, you know, Goonies was PG. This was PG-13. This uh, had a little more edge Ooh. to it. Um, It just felt like... It was the cool kids, Goonies. Like, Goonies is like family entertainment, something you'd see uh, as the ABC movie of the week or something like that. Like, it was just a little more toned down. And this was like, dude, I mean, kids full on like chain smoking cigarettes in this. <laughs> I know, dude. <laughs> Zero fucks year olds drinking beer and yeah. like <laughs> watching like girls undress through dude, the they're trying to shit yeah, like that. There is like, almost titties in this. <laughs> this is almost a like Ralph Fusconti novel. This is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like a, a PG thirteen Porky's a little bit at times, right, right, you know, yeah. Which, and again, it was just you know this was also reflective of the time. You, the you 80s. hear about legends of those films, right? When we're kids, of like, oh yeah, remember when like kids movies could like show smoking and boobs and stuff. This is like right on the cusp <laughs> of those kinds of films, and um, yeah. Yeah. To the point that it's actually a little jarring, actually, to go back and like the first couple times, like, you know, there's like a couple times where they like call their teacher a homo and stuff like yes. that. And you're like, oh, that's like not very appropriate. These it days. harkens really back to an earlier time. Yes. Like, yeah. So uh, there's no, it's definitely, you know, a little, a little coarse with the kind of like locker room language. There's like a couple other things that they drop there. And, and just like I said, some of those older things that we've since kind of moved away from. But uh, it's also, you know, done to a very minor degree. And also as kids from that time, we know like, yeah, that's kind of how kids talked back then. Sure. It wasn't, it wasn't great. Right. <laughs> a number of things where you just kind of said it because other people said it and not think about it. And you grow up and you're like, Oh, Oh, that was very derogatory. We should, <laughs> should not have said that to those people. Right. Uh, but again, you know, it was like, uh, is a time before we, we advanced. So, but it's nice to reflect and know that we have come a certain way, you know, and be able to say, like, we've talked about this before, you know, some of the 90s films. Like, it's a little rough at times, sure, but it's also 
the fact that it's rough means we've come a long way so good sure. for us, you know? Yeah, I didn't give it much mind. I mean, it's uh, I'm glad that we've grown as a minor. society, but uh, this was a, uh, you know, brief window into an earlier age. But more than that, it just, it kind of was a dividing line. You're, you're not wrong. Like, as much as there were kids that liked Monster Squad or liked Goonies, I knew kids that were like the Goonies or like the Monster Squad. Like, I knew underage kids that smoked cigarettes and swore and had Playboys stashed in the woods and all the things that would encapsulate the Monster Squad type of kids. But then I also knew the innocent kids that would slide down hills on cardboard and build tree forts and stuff like that, too. So, you know, it it was kind of a uh, an interesting thing to go visit the other cool kids of the Monster Squad and not so much the uh, (laughs) L7 Square kids of the Goonies. (laughs) But there is a lot of crossover between these two films. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the other thing I will say about this film as well, and it's one of the, I think it's one of the reasons that I gravitated towards this film when I was younger, when I kind of reflect back on it, which is, and I may have mentioned this at an end of last episode or something, but like I was actually not one of those kids that loved horror movies. I was actually kind of sensitive to some of the stuff that I watched when I was younger and horror movies really scared me to this day. I have a very, very graphic recurring nightmare about uh, it's a, it's a, it's a mashup nightmare of gremlins and teenage mutant Ninja turtles uh, that I got from not even watching the movie gremlins, but rather watching a short clip on Siskel and Ebert when they were reviewing gremlins Two. Right. Okay. And so like even, even seeing the box art for dead alive where it had like the skull underneath with like oh, the yeah. chick, like tearing apart, that would kind of creep me out. And so yeah. I was just like, I don't think I like these movies. Right. And so, yeah. you know, but every now and then you would get these sort of like PG 13 films that dabbled close to horror without really like diving into some of the more extreme aspects of the genre. Yeah. And I loved the shit out of those. And so I really think that was also, one of the appealing aspects of this film for me growing up is that it wasn't something that I was too terrified of. It like wasn't super gory. You know, it's, it sort of keeps a very lighthearted tone throughout never really gets super sinister. It's not Hellraiser where like people's skin are getting being pulled apart and all this like super right, graphic right. stuff that I didn't Which like. by the way, so, you know, the eighties when we were growing up was right or in early nineties was rife with all of that candy man. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, that was the, yeah, that's like the golden Freddy era Cooper of like horror and, films right yeah. now. Right. And I'm yeah. I'm glad I got to go back in the nineties uh during the five movies for five days for five bucks days and uh bone <laughs> up on all those blockbuster. Things. Yeah, when I got my <laughs> courage up uh to go see those things when I got a little older. But uh you're right. When I was just a wee lad, these were the kinds of films that that uh spoke to me. So um I'm with you on all those things. I just for whatever reason not never got around to Monster Squad. In all fairness, Uh, A lot of people didn't. This wasn't a very widely distributed film, and we're going to get into all of that. It didn't do a lot of success in the box office. This was something that kind of came around later. Um, I'm glad you found it at an early age, but uh, this was not... I don't remember this even being a box art film. I know we talk about box art films a lot on this show, where you remember you know, the cover of the film on the... VHS, you know, whatever, like when you go to the video store, sometimes that yeah. drew you to rent the film. Other times you just straight remember the box art. Fright Night is one of those. Creep Show is one of those. Uh, Evil Dead 2 is one of those. Like you I was going to say, Evil Dead 2 is the number one with the right. bullet that always sticks out with the skull with the eyes looking at you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
house with the little uh, hand in the door, the oh, little yeah, finger the in the hand, doorbell, the you know? Hand. Yeah. There's a few of those <laughs> that like, you know, will always be with me, but I don't ever yes. remember seeing this in the video store um, until it became a cult hit and got the notoriety that we have with it now. And uh, then it was one of those movies that I always heard about, but now, you know, it got to a point where I was like too old. I was still explore. you know, I had moved on past, monster squad phase i was trying to explore yeah you know other things and so i never really had the i never really had the reason or the excuse to go back and and visit this film until now and and uh so it was it was fun man this was a good one to just kind of throw on the nostalgia goggles like you're saying and uh and take a trip back into time and just go be a kid again for a brisk hour and a half or something like it was a really short film it's 82 minutes yeah. it's an hour 22 and that's with credits and i don't know if you caught this they actually slowed down the credits <laughs> so that they're slower than usual to take yep. longer take it, <laughs> it all was in. such a short film take it all in <laughs> yep absolutely and speaking of sort of old school nostalgia glasses it starts off with what i believe is both of our if not all-time favorites certainly up there of the movie studio logo title cards, which is the good old TriStar logo. Oh, yeah. With the uh, Pegasus. Oh, dude, it's fantastic. Yeah. So it starts off with that guy. I think we brought that up this season for uh, RoboCop, because that was an Orion picture. Ah, My two favorites are always going to be Orion and TriStar. Those are the two. Same, yeah. And then I'm sure we've mentioned, too, about the uh, the old uh, HBO intro. With oh, all yeah. the models, that's Dude, like that's another just, classic one that'll yeah, always Yeah, that's remember. fire. Yeah, they could have <laughs> they could have made that twenty minutes, and I would still go back and watch that. Yeah, I love that the flying through the miniature city, you know, landscape and all of that. Yeah, man, back in the days of good old practical effects. Jesus, if anybody under the age of twenty six was listening, they are not anymore. They're like, hold on, let me get you, let me get you your rocking chair, Gramps. Pepperidge Farm all about remembers Blockbuster. Do you remember VHS? the HBO intro? <laughs> <laughs> I remember. <laughs> that was when now, we could get the bunny ears straight to get the picture to come in clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Back when VCRs had tracking, you had to push the buttons up and down. I love that it's clear. always a. Uh, a southern gentleman that remembers these things. Yeah. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Like the old, like grizzled, like New York guy. Like, uh, yeah, I remember those times. That uh, was hard. It was hard times. Yeah, uh, yeah. You had to do the tracking, and so often and you just you didn't know if it was up or down. You didn't even know what tracking was. You just knew you had to hold the button. Some days I had to decide between HBO and cigarettes, but I always chose HBO. <laughs> If you wanted to steal cable, it wasn't a hold to do. You gave your guy 50 bucks and it was done. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when the film starts off, we actually get a nice text crawl, and that explains kind of what's going on here. I'll read it for you verbatim here real quick. 100 years before this story begins, it was a time of darkness in Transylvania, a time when Dr. Abraham Van Helsing and a small band of freedom fighters conspired to rid the world of vampires and monsters and to save mankind from the forces of eternal evil. Dot, dot, dot. They blew it. 
which is exactly what you would expect <laughs> like a young 20 something screenwriter to like start off their screenplay with. Yep. Now, after that, we actually open on a pretty cool foreboding shot of a Grim Reaper statue in a graveyard. The credits start to crawl. We've got lightning striking. We've got this eerie music that's sort of playing. And the camera dollies through this graveyard, brings us to Dracula's castle, through the crypt, past coffins and spiders, to a large bat that is hanging upside down, which I think was just a very cool practical effect, uh, and one of many that we'll see through the entirety of this film. But the introduction to Dracula as this bat hanging upside down, and then he drops to the ground. We get a quick cut of a hand, and then a reveal that it's our Mr. Dracula. And outside of the castle, we've got Van Helsing and his team of people who are approaching. They blow open the doors and get the first glimpse of one of the brides of Dracula, who I think are very well done. They're very simple, very effective, but super creepy. And she's basically sitting there like eating a rat with like blood dripping down her mouth and gets a stake through the heart uh, with a uh, crossbow. And then there's this gleaming amulet. Girls brought out to recite an incantation, at which point the ground splits up, skeletons pop out, this vortex opens as she finishes, and everyone gets sucked in before we jump to the present day, which, of course, at the time of filming is 1987. Now, Ryan, as someone who's just come into this film without having seen it before, a Monster Squad virgin, if you will, how did that opening strike you? Like, did you, you know, did 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 it work for you? Did you did you like it? Was it indicative, or did you think it was going to take a while to get going? How did that welcome you to the world of the Monster Squad? No, I mean that was fantastic because, and we've talked about this plenty already in this episode, and, and I think in the last episode we announced this film. Uh, but you know, I always kind of, I always kind of pass this off as a Kirkland brand Goonies. And I thought right out the gate, we're establishing this as something different because Goonies didn't have monsters aside from sloth. It was more of a, an adventure tale. They're following uh, a pirate map, a treasure map the whole time. And it leads them through the sewers and caves and booby traps and all these things. uh, And they're being chased by a ragtag group of, you know, bank robbers or criminals or whatever. Um, But this is different. Like we're going right into Dracula Van Helsing. I've also um, just watched recently Bram Stoker's Dracula that I did for the mini reviews. So, right. uh, you know, I was kind of in that Draculia mindset and uh, yeah, <laughs> I thought it was dope, Dr. Man. Acula. Yeah. But I, I did appreciate that as much as this gets passed off as like, you know, Goonie, like we talked about it already, you know, Goonies this and that, um, you know, it's it's separating itself right out the gate. And I think that's an unfair comparison. Now, there is a lot of overlap in other ways with the the, the ragtag group of kids in general. And we're going to get to that here very shortly. But uh, yeah, I thought it was dope the way they did that and and kind of gave us some some context. Absolutely. And I, the other thing that I think that it does well is it kind of establishes that we're going to be playing within a realm that's already been sort of pre-established, sure. right? And it's just going to maybe take some of these, like it doesn't really, it's not a radical new reinvention of any of these monsters. All it's of not? these classic universal monster monsters that are going to pop up over the course of the film still retain all of their original qualities. They have been given a nice 1980s veneer, which Stan Winston and his team crushed it. We'll get into that. But again, you know, this is, it, it's, Playing within the pre-established universe and Van Helsing and everything else that goes along with that. And even though it doesn't go into any of the lore too deep, it does a good job of adhering to what's there. But I think so you know when- it. Like, you know the deal. So the, it, it's it, it's really 
easy to dip in and out of this story and just kind of establish it really quickly and then get right to modern day. It didn't beat you over the head with it. It wasn't ham fisted. It was just enough to say once upon a time and, uh, you know, we get into it and then we're, we're right into modern day. So because we're using established characters and established lore, um, you know, they could kind of, uh, dot, dot, dot their way through it. And it was, and it worked fine. Yeah, absolutely. Now from there, like I said, we have jumped to the present day and we meet the first of our, well, the first two of our kids anyways, and that is going to be Sean and Patrick. And Sean is pretty much the leader of this group and he is going to be our protagonist throughout the course of the film, though the others are going to be given a good enough amount of screen time. Probably, I would say, of the rest of them, Rudy probably dominates uh, the most, and then Patrick after that, and then we've got a couple of the other ones that'll pop up. But it does a good job, uh, oh, and Horace, of course, but it does a good job of sort of giving all of them enough screen time to where we do believe that they're a squad, right? Like they are sold as. So the first of these two characters are in the principal's office. They're being talked to because in science class, they were drawing monsters when they should have been paying attention. We've got your sort of, you know, that uh, classic 80s principal who's trying to be cool and meet the kids on their level, but just ends up being super lame. And the kids end up scoffing at him, by which, of course, by extension, we as the audience end up scoffing at him. And it, it does a very good job immediately of dropping you into these kids' shoes and kind of letting you know that's the experience and viewpoint that we're going to tell this story through and experience this story through. We also very quickly meet Horace, who is going to be known throughout much of the movie as simply Fat Kid, which, again, is one of those things that probably wouldn't be done if this film were uh, made today in 2022. Uh, and we also get Rudy, who definitely would not be characterized the way that he is. <laughs> uh, because he's basically a 22-year-old living in a 13-year-old's body. Instead of having a, you know, Harley Davidson or a motorcycle, he's got one of those cool bikes with the spokes on the back. But yeah, you know, he he shows up, you know, screeches onto uh, campus smoking a cigarette and when his buddy Horace is being punked around by who I believe is the jerky brother from the Wonder Years. It was. And yeah, I have no idea what his name is, but recognize his face all day long. And I think his name is Jason Hervey. He's the resident bully uh, in all movies back in the 80s. He's who he hired. Uh, Jason's. Jason's always have the most punchable faces, man. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but always just these blonde, punchable faces with the Jasons. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, we're introduced to him when he's punking around Horace, slaps his snicker bar out of his hands. Rudy shows up and the kid actually like stepped on it with his shoe. Rudy shows up, makes him eat it. And everyone kind of, you know, laughs and mocks him. Now, when they're walking home, we've got the two kids, Sean and Patrick. They're joined by Sean's little sister, Phoebe, who's actually going to factor into the film quite a bit before the, it's over. And they pass what is known as scary German guy's house. <laughs> now, Ryan, one thing that also did kind of make me laugh just with regards to some of the more unsavory elements is like they went with German. You know, here in 2022, you can still have scary German guy. And that's yep. OK. If it's they had right. gone with like, you know, scary Persian guy or something like it probably <laughs> would just be rife with offensive stereotypes. Right. Scary Indian guy like with. Any of those things, right? Scary Asian guy. You got Mickey Rooney doing his like. Can't do that. Uh, offensive. Thing. Yeah, no. So, uh, but scary German guy. 
And he actually is played very well by uh, an older gentleman whose name I did not bother to look up. My apologies, older gentleman, if you're out there listening. I assume you are. Leonardo Chimino is his ah, name. Ryan, I'm so glad I have you here for these things, right? Yep. At least one of us is responsible. Which doesn't sound German at all, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's just hardcore Italian and really good at accents. Yes. It's a me, <laughs> Mr. Scary yeah. German guy. <laughs> it's like, oh boy. <laughs> Yeah, that's We hilarious. didn't know. We so couldn't we... travel internationally in the 80s. We didn't know any better. Like, eh, he's European. German. Yeah, fine. absolutely. Done. No, totally works. And honestly, I think, you know, reflecting on it for a moment, I'm sure it was reverse engineered from the standpoint of, I believe Van Helsing is originally German. I believe his journals are German and... So I'm sure they just stuck. Yeah, I mean, they just, that was, they they needed a through point to get to that, uh, that, that lore, like you were saying earlier. Yeah. This this part of the film, the Van Helsing text. This part of the film, too, was kind of, it reminded me of the Sandlot and uh, James Earl Jones's house, you know, like the, the, the abandoned, uh, you know, scary house that the kids always avoided. I feel like there's one of those in every one of these kind of movies. You know what I mean? Like there's always that. Yeah. That uh, stereotypical house that kids would avoid because it's dilapidated or run down. And then, of course, uh, you know, kids start to share stories about who lives there and what's going on. And, uh, yeah, it builds up its own own tradition. And, uh, that yeah, this was no different. So, yeah. Now, we're going to go ahead and jump into all of the obvious things about this film in a minute. Things like all the makeup effects, the costume, direction, all of this. But the first thing I want to talk about is one of the last things that I usually talk about, and that's the score. Now, maybe this is because I've seen this movie so many times, dozens and dozens of times, that it kind of frees me up to pay more attention to something like the score that I'm usually not paying as close attention to. But it was on this viewing, and it had been a couple of years since I'd seen the movie. I think I make a point, and probably one, I think I make a point to watch it every year or so, every couple of years at least. I, I noticed how integral the score was to a lot of what's going on. And even down to the standpoint that, you know, this is clearly one of those scores where you know they're watching and they're doing like a live orchestral performance and really punctuating a lot of what's going on on screen because the film dabbles very very well I would say in a very balanced way between being a sort of kids adventure and a horror film and so you could imagine that it might be kind of difficult musically to come up with a number of cues that effectively play both sides without going too strong one way or the other, right? And so I thought this film did a really good job, the score that is, of establishing it as a kid's film, but also making the scary parts seem scary. There's also a couple resonant moments that the score punctuates, like at the very end when Horace finally gets his moment in uh, cocks the shotgun and he's like, my name is Horace. And there's like this little, right. These little like sound cues. So the score is really effective at, and then of course, you know, when it's the eighties montage, it's that like super rocking eighties style beat. So just really, really impressed. Like I said, with the the score overall, again, I don't know if this is something that jumped out because I've seen the film a lot, but did did it? No, I totally noticed it too. I'm going to go one step further and say that as I was researching the players of this film, to see, because I'm always curious, right? When you go back to some of these older nostalgia movies, like who went on to go do other things? And so obviously uh, we'll talk about Fred Decker in a moment. And of course we all know Shane Black. We're going to talk about him too. But this, uh, since you br- brought up the music, it's done by a guy named Bruce Broughton. I think I'm maybe pronouncing that right. Yep, Hopefully that's maybe. what I had. 
And uh, I don't know if you went through his credits, but uh, he's done. He's acted as a composer and did additional music for a lot of Disney and Pixar stuff. Yeah. Um, Namely Monsters, Inc., Fantasia 2000, A Bug's Life. He did this score for um, Tombstone. Um, He did the theme music for Tiny Toon Adventures and Dinosaurs, the Jim Henson uh, vehicle, Disney Jim Henson vehicle from TGIF back in the day. Um, He did. he, He acted as a conductor for Tales from the Crypt. I mean, this guy went on and on and yeah. did a lot of stuff. Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, so I married an axe murderer. So yeah, I mean, he's um, <laughs> and you're forgetting the all time classic those, Baby's Day Out, sir. His <laughs> magnum opus, Baby's Day. How out. could I forget? Yeah, he didn't compose <laughs> all those, but he did act as conductor or additional music. Some of those he did compose. Um, but yeah, if you go uh, look him up on IMDb, he's got a really good uh, list of films there. Absolutely, yeah. So. Big props to Bruce Bowden, and he brought a lot of energy to this film that I think really worked. Now, when we get back to the film, we've got some pilots flying a cargo plane, which, by the way, one of them has the most Miami Beach cocaine cowboy Kenny Loggins look I've ever seen. I I just adore it, right? (laughs) And it's smooth. Absolutely. We've got the other pilot, there's you know, two co-pilots, and one of them goes back into the cargo bay. I think they hear a noise or something like that, and they go to investigate. Uh, we've got some deep red light back there, and there's some bats flying around that very quickly turn into Dracula. So, you know, the pilot panics, ends up throwing a hatch that would, like, open the floor beneath Count Dracula. I, I'm assuming, you know, the idea being that he would fall down to his death. But, of course, being Dracula, he can fly. So... Dude opens the hatch. Dracula stays there floating, giving him some fuck you eyes along the way. But the cargo, which is a coffin, that itself uh, departs and flies all the way to the ground. And actually must have been a hell of a coffin because it survives a very, very long drop into a swamp where it remains. And that's going to come up here in just a little bit. Now, we've been introduced to Rudy. He's the guy who protected Horace, the badass I believe at this point he's like just swigging beer inside the treehouse, right? Because you know, again, yeah. that's what you did in the eighties. Like, no, he's the cool kid. You know, he's thirteen already. Of course, he's going to be drinking right. beer in a treehouse. And come on, you know, please. in Goonies, you had Josh Brolin's character who kind of played that role as the older brother uh, to a certain degree, but he was never smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and you know looking at boobs and all these things. <laughs> um, he just played an older brother, a more experienced teen. Uh, whereas this kid shoved all in this kid more reminded me of the Eddie character from stranger things, which I don't think you've seen, but, uh, yeah. Um, famously, uh, Eddie sacrifices himself in the, in the latest rendition of stranger things, uh, while playing uh, Metallica riff, I believe it was ride the lightning, but, uh, anyways, master yeah. of puppets, if, if, if I recall correctly, master of puppets. Yes, it was master of puppets. I stand corrected. Um, yeah. I must be wearing orthopedic shoes. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's what this reminded me of was uh, was like that that style, more of an Eddie style character that still hung out with the the kids, maybe a couple years older, going through some changes. But uh, yeah, they're still out hunting monsters together, even though he's looking at boobies and smoking some stogues. Absolutely. And we find out that mom has uh, gotten a journal from a local garage sale or something like that. Eh, I don't really explain where she got it, but either way, it ends up being Van Helsing's journal, which apparently is just the type of thing that you can find laying around at a garage sale, uh, but it's written in <laughs> German, so she gives it to her kid because you know she knows he likes the monster stuff, but he can't read it quite yet. Wonder if there's anybody that could read German that we've been introduced to yet. 
might help out maybe in the it's leonardo chimino <laughs> <laughs> now the other character german real quick i just want to interject it did you notice that the mom literally is the same mom from the goonies mary ellen trainer oh no i didn't go figure yeah about that but yeah no i could totally see it now we also instead of the, besides the mom as well we also meet the dad. Now dad is kind of a again another sort of a 80s stereotype here where he's the cop who's addicted to the job. Just as much as uh, he's addicted to cigarettes actually. That motherfucker is chain smoking the entire film. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, one he, of those he like, and Rudy must be like bumming them <laughs> off each other all the time. I I had a joke, I thought kept thinking about that laughing it to myself. I'm like I wonder if they bum cigarettes off each other. Right. Hey, kids, you gotta like. <laughs> I have in my notes here that he's a uh, Kirkland brand Eric Roberts. He looked just like Eric Roberts to me every time he came oh, on screen. Oh, that's funny. Like, yeah. Yeah, you know what's uh you know what's funny is to me I actually thought that he was a, a Kirkland brand Craig T. Nelson. I okay. Seen Craig T. Nelson in that role, much like uh, Poltergeist, you know, the the just sort of tired fa- suburban father, right? In the role, <laughs> yes, but he had the hair and the face yeah, and the no. look of Eric he Roberts. He didn't really like down. look. Yeah, no, he looked more like Eric Roberts, but in terms of just like the physicality and, and the, sure, the way sure. that he played the character and all of that. Yep. I also just love, it's so funny to re- remember that as recently as 30 years ago, sitting down on your bedroom bed and lighting up a cigarette and then grabbing your kid and dropping him on your lap and telling him a story with that cigarette smoke just sitting there fucking blowing in his face all day long. <laughs> Nobody cared. Perfectly nope. acceptable. Yeah. Nobody ever thought twice about it. Hey, you got, seven kids. Section. you got seven kids in the car. Roll them windows up and light it up. Nobody cares. Don't even need to throw a seatbelt on them either. Just make sure they make it to church okay. Hey, man, I had seven kids because I thought I might lose two or three. You know, like, shit happens. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, with this father figure, by the way, he is actually, we're introduced to them, some marital problems, a little bit of mar- marital strife in the house there. They're actually He has a to line to- at one point that says, honey, I'm a cop, okay? <laughs> and I have that written in quotes. I have no idea what context it was. I just remember th- knowing that that line was hilarious to me. I think I think it's right there when he's I think it's right around here because yeah. they're supposed to go to it's, marriage counseling. It's right there counseling. in my notes. Yeah, so it's around this time. Yeah, they're supposed to go to marriage counseling and he gets called because there's been a break in at the museum and he's like, "Honey, I've uh, uh my job's important." And she's like, "I'm important." And then he like looks at her and he's like, uh, "I'll see you later." Or whatever the line you just said is. I've got a job. "Honey, I'm whatever. a cop, okay?" Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like, right? <laughs> like that just writes off neglect. Yeah, no big deal. That's going to go over great in today's uh environment. Good luck. <laughs> Now, one thing I will say about this film that I think we've sort of been established to already, even without the monsters being like all of them being formally introduced, is already we're seeing that the film has a very sort of breakneck pace. And especially sure. with regards to the direction, you know, it's it's shot and it's presented in a little bit more of an elevated fashion than maybe your standard family-friendly kids' fair might be. I'm talking about the fact that there's a ton of dolly movement in this, you know? Rarely is the camera just sort of stationary. It's always sort of pushing in or pushing through, booming, craning around a little bit in very sort of subtle ways. Now, he does also use a lot of master shots. One of the funny things, actually, I'll do a quick aside here, by the way, I will say this. So I ended up watching a bare bones release of this film and there is pretty much no 
information available online. There's a handful of deleted scenes that you can see on YouTube that really didn't affect the film whatsoever. There are 30 to 45 second shots that actually should have been taken out because they just slowed the film down without adding anything. However, it turns out that there was a special edition Blu-ray that came out on its 30th anniversary or perhaps 25th. And this thing is loaded with stuff, uh, which is uh, to say that it has apparently like a four to six part documentary on there and not one, but two audio commentaries. And this is normally the type of thing where for this program, especially in our third season now, I would have gotten that DVD and I would have like torn into it, man. And I would have listened to all of it and I'd be talking about a lot of it right now. That is not available as a new media. Like you can't buy a new copy of that. And so the the one that was available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of this and any of them, they were all 50 bucks brand new. And I just was not going to spend 50 bucks on this Blu-ray. And they actually have them. You can find it for $10 used on eBay. And I would have loved to have done that, but it was going to take a couple weeks to get here. So I just – I wouldn't have had enough time to have ordered it, brought it in, and also digested it in time for us to be recording here. So Jason, I'm, you know what I'm hearing right now? A lot of excuses. A lot of excuses, buddy. <laughs> a lot of excuses. Tighten up. I know it. Get I know shit it. together. I'm just saying, dude, like I've been able to like bring the anecdotes and, and a lot of information to a lot of these episodes because I do seek them out. And as long as something's been available, I've been able to get my hands on it. And especially when it's a Criterion film, you know, there's a ton of content out there. I, I really regret that I wasn't able to do that on a film that I loved so much, right? Like I would have just eating that up. Instead, what I did is I watched this documentary called Wolfman's Got Nards, which for anybody listening, if, if you haven't watched it, don't bother. It's really not very engaging and it's not really that interesting. It's a lot of member berries and nostalgia glasses. The, the entire film is 90 minutes of, hey, did you like Monster Saw growing up? I sure did. Did you like Frankenstein? Yeah, I remember Frankenstein. Wow, wasn't it cool? Wolfman's Got Nards. Yeah, Wolfman's Got Nards. And then they'd be like, here's the entire team of uh, people that Stan Winston hired, and this dude made the fish costume, and this guy made Dracula, and you're like, okay, sweet. All right, we're going to get into it here. They're like, but you don't want to know about any of that. Here's some more people talking about how much they love the film, and you're like, no. No, I actually would have loved to have heard from those guys. And so there were just, you know, I feel like there's a lot more stories about the film that are out there that I didn't get a chance to come across for one reason or another. And I regret that, you know, not just because I'd be able to present them here, but because I'd like to know these things about, you know, my absolute favorite film growing up. It's too bad. That's um, that's a real shame, too. I did not see Wolfman Scott Nards because you told me not to bother. But that is, uh, I'm sure you saw this, but it's directed by the Sean character, the main character, the main kid of this film. Uh, yeah. Monster Squad. So when you have someone on the inside doing it, you'd expect a little more inside information, you know. But I guess he just wanted to keep it on the surface level and, you know, talk about the impact of it on culture more than he wanted to talk about the making of the film itself uh, is all I could really take from it. But uh, yeah. which it sounds like he did cover that and it's fun. In that regard, it's a fun romp, but it's not going to lend itself to, you know, this podcast very well. Yeah, you know, or like I said, I'm sure that, you know, listening to two audio commentaries from Fred Decker is going to glean a lot more. Would have loved to have heard those. That documentary itself. So, but let's, the one thing I will say, though, the one very interesting takeaway from Wolfman Scott Nards is that Fred Decker. So this film, uh, back up a little bit. This one was a huge disappointment. 
It didn't even crack the top 10 the weekend that it came out. And that just spells death for any film. Now, the one thing that they do say is that just two weeks prior, The Lost Boys came out. And so they do feel, even though it was an R-rated film, they do feel like The Lost Boys stole a lot of that thunder that maybe they could have had if that film hadn't come out because it was a huge hit. People were still going to check that out. So instead of going to see The Monster Squad, people were still going out to see The Lost Boys. And so the film failed. It was Fred Decker's second film, I believe, after Night of the Creeps, which was his first. And he actually was kind of on a trajectory where he was kind of going to be a Hollywood director. You know, he was friends with Shane Black. They kind of came up a little bit together. And so when this film came out and bombed, it effectively ended his career for some time. Now, you have to remember that this is pre-internet, right? And so there's really no way for Fred Decker to know that for the ensuing 10, 15, 20 years, it turns out that a lot of people are actually getting exposed to this film and coming to like it to the point that it's becoming a bit of a cult film. So when the lead actor, the Sean character, I believe Andre Gower is his name, when he actually reached out to Fred Decker 20 years after the movie was released to let him know, like, hey, I'm doing this documentary. would love for you to be a part of it. Like, all these people love the film. He didn't even want to partake in it because he had a very hard time with the reaction of this film. Like, he put his heart and soul into it. He knew it was a good film. And it and and not only did it not do well, but it also prevented him from making films moving forward. So you can tell that this is a guy who has gone to like a lot of psychotherapy to sort of deal with what this all means about his future and why did this happen and how come people didn't like it and da, da, da. So, you know, kind of think of it like the woman that you love, like the woman of your dreams, the woman you were going to spend your entire life with, like dumps you and just bails for 20 years. And you've gone through all these psychotherapy sessions and, you know, you finally come to terms with it after a lot of really difficult work. And then all of a sudden she pops up and she's like, hey, what's up? I know it's been 20 years and I bailed on you, but uh, uh, you want to get back together again? And it's like, no, what do you want to know? No, where were you 10, 15, 20 years ago? Like I put so much work into moving on from you and now you just show up. And that's very much kind of the metaphor that I would use in terms of how. I perceived Fred Decker's reaction to this film because people came up to him and he was just like, look, I'm sorry. Like, I don't have fond memories of this film. Like, this was a very, very difficult situation for me and it took a long time to get over. So as much as I would love to, hey, yeah, it's great that everyone loves it. Like, I, I, I can't just be that way about this film. So it's a very conflicted response that he has. And that's evident throughout the course of the documentary. So that was the one aspect of the film that I thought was really interesting was seeing Fred Decker kind of have this reckoning of the fact that people did come to love this film and it was everything that he thought it was, but circumstances made it seem as though it wasn't. And the technology at the time prevented him from being able to go along on that journey of, of seeing people grow to love it, you know? So that in and of itself was super interesting. I wonder how much money it's made since then, because we haven't talked about this. This was made on a budget of $12 million, which is pretty incredible to me. I guess most of that must have gone to Stan Winston and the, you know, a lot of the effects design and creatures and stuff. But uh, I don't know where else it would have gone to other than the camera movement you're discussing. 12 million is 
a decent amount. That's for a good amount at the time. Yeah. And this short. Yeah. And they were able to get an hour the, uh, and 20 minutes. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, they have the obvious product placement. Right. So, like, I mean, they have Burger King was a sponsor for this film. So obviously it was right. supposed to be like a big hit, you know. But it only brought in three point eight million. So it didn't yeah. even make 30 percent of its money back. You know, that's that is rough. And. Um, I, I watched uh, some some you know stuff on this film and, and some of the research that I did uh, credited a lot of the lack of success of this film as well in the fact that nobody knew how to market it because it wasn't it was like too childish to be a teen movie and too grown up to be a kids movie so that that demographic didn't really exist back then the PG thirteen rating was like brand spanking new so yeah. everybody was learning how to adapt to that. So where you have the Lost Boys, that is a easier movie to market because, okay, we're going, you know, R rating, whatever. Uh, we're going to go a little more edgy with it. The sharp teeth, it'll be a little darker, a little more violent. Uh, and you have Goonies. It's like way on the other side. That's a kid's movie. PG, totally safe. Steven Spielberg, blah, blah, blah. We're going to go on this fun romp. Um, but this kind of like tried to straddle both those. And I think that market definitely existed just five, six, seven years later when we got into the 90s and got into you know, movies that were catering more to the early teens and stuff. And we were okay with some of these things, but uh, yeah, I, I think that, cause I, I heard that um, like some of the marketing was marketed to really young kids and stuff. Some of it was marketed in more of an adult fashion, but because of that, like it never really found a true audience. Like it was really split down the middle. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of the marketing campaigns, one of the things that they talked about is like, again, just going back to the 80s and and sort of like the inappropriateness and not just not knowing is they actually had a pretty fun marketing campaign where they would show each of the monsters in like a wanted poster. Right. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. Did you see the one for the mummy? Um, I saw them all. Yeah. <laughs> Literally one of the jokes that they make, because it's basically like, you know, like, uh, Dracula, uh, wanted, uh, you know, theft of seven pints of blood, right? Uh, grand theft, uh, biting or something, right? Like they would always try to do these like little puns on things, right? For the mummy, one of the things they went with in this huge national public marketing campaign, the mummy wanted statutory rap. Jesus. <laughs> like, can you imagine seeing that on a billboard in downtown Los Angeles oh, right now? Oh, man. Holy yeah. shit, man. That was like, wow. Again, certain yeah. things just kind of remind you, like, these were very different times with what you I'm looking at it right say. now. The, yeah, the Dracula one is, uh, <laughs> f- fel- it's got his mugshot. It says, wanted, felony biting, unlawful blood sucking, assault, and bat <laughs> Eyes. Bloodshot complexion, deathly pale. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and it's the, not even the same actor that they used in the fucking movie. <laughs> so like, they didn't even try. They were just like throwing shit at the wall to see what stuck. It's so, so stupid. Yeah, yeah. Because what's funny is on the initial poster, you also see where they're trying to go for a different messaging, where they were trying to piggyback off of Ghostbusters. You so saw I guess that the, too. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, you know. Uh, you know who to call when they've got ghosts, but who do you call when you've got monsters, right? So, yeah, yeah you just right. see them kind of throwing darts like, what's a comp here that we can go with? You know, like, well, we've got, got Ghostbusters. Nothing. Well, we've got this. Well, we've got Goonies. And like, but it was such an incoherent marketing campaign that you'd have to imagine no one really knew what they were showing up for. 
Right. Yeah. And then, like you said, put that on the heels of movies that actually did work and then yeah. it never really found its audience. And that's really a shame. Fred Decker would only go on to direct one other film, and that's RoboCop 3. Not a a good one. Not a good one at all. (laughs) But getting back to the film, this is where things really kick off with the monsters. We've got a shot of a police precinct. A man runs in there. He's very frantic. He's demanding to be locked up on account of being a werewolf. He keeps screaming, I'm a werewolf. I'm a werewolf. Now he gets- Lock me up. Yeah, lock me up. Bam, bam, bam. And then he gets shot. A really actually intense scene. Again, some of these scenes, it's easy to take for granted. They're like, this is a kid's movie, right? Like that scene isolated in a different film is very intense. And probably belongs in an R-rated film, even though it's not gory. Yeah, but like all through this film, that werewolf guy in human form does nothing but scream orders at everybody and requests. (laughs) I have in my notes here, maybe he tries not yelling. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Just ask for stuff. Because there's like... He calls the dad at one point later in the film, and he's like, your kid's going to die. He's got your kid. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. It's threatening. Dude. It sounds like you're yeah. threatening him. <laughs> like, take a breath. Doesn't okay, sound like a let's warning. chill. Let's start with this. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought maybe he just needs to, you know, chill. Like, a little bit of, a, little bit of sugar attracts more uh, flies than vinegar, whatever the saying is, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is really where that breakneck pace kind of starts to kick in. So we've got, you know, at the museum, we find out that the mummy is missing. Then we cut to a shot where we're in the ambulance. The man who was claiming to be a werewolf who was just shot wakes up as the wolf man and attacks the driver uh, in a very Twilight Zone, the movie type of shot, like at the very beginning, very reminiscent of that. And we've got also Dracula from there who meets all the monsters at the swamp. Now, the only creatures that we haven't really been introduced to yet to are the remaining two, which is who I will call the creature from the Black Lagoon, classic universal monster, who finds the coffin in the swamp and ends up hoisting it and chucking it out. And it turns out that the coffin actually contains Frankenstein's monster. That's actually the target that Dracula has been trying to get to the entire time. Now, I have to say, Ryan, this was this is the one... I mean, there's several kind of cheesy moments in the film for sure. Again, it's a kid's film, but this is the one truly like Batman TV show moment where it's like, hmm, how are we going to wake up Frankenstein? Ah, I know. I'll pull these electric shock absorbers out of my cane. It's like, <laughs> that's probably like you're in, that, that cane has been building up to this moment its entire life. You have oh, never yeah. had a use for those two little electric shock absorbers, uh, shock things. <laughs> but right now to wake up Frankenstein, they are here. And the inexplicable reason why your walking cane has electrical currents flowing through it has just finally paid off. Yep, he's been <laughs> charging that thing for millennia. <laughs> one day, my precious, one day. Yeah, right. He's actually, he's more <laughs> stoked about that than finding Frankenstein. It's like, dude, I paid yeah. $700 for that damn thing. It's about time it paid off. so uh they you know it's a lightning storm he's able to use it to wake up frankenstein we also get a very funny sequence immediately after that of the youngest uh kid in the monster squad his name is eugene and he goes and he tells his dad that there's a monster in his closet and the dad's being very dismissive and he just kind of like walks around the room he's like okay let's see what's here and he like throws it open but he's like looking at the kid and he's like "Ooh, 
there's a scary monster back there in a very mocking fashion, except there actually is. And the mummy's back there and like raises his hand and like reaches out to the kid. And the that dad, was a like, cool ass looking mummy, too. It really was. Yeah. And that actually brings up a good point, Ryan, because the, arguably the selling feature of this movie, aside from the sort of, you know, kids in a pack, if you're younger, is the bringing back of the five heavy hitters of Universal Monsters, right? That's Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. All of them are brought back for this film and given updated makeup and effects and everything is practical. So... Tell me about that, Ryan. Did all that work for you? Was that what you loved oh, most yeah. about the film? And and, yes. and which of the creatures did you like the most? Talk a little bit about that. The mummy especially was fantastic. Gilman was great, too. I loved Gilman, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm assuming they switched his name to Gilman because Creature from the Black Lagoon is a mouthful. And yeah. And they had to, like, <laughs> have something to roll call him off with, you know, as the movie went along. So, uh, Dracula, I thought, left a little bit to be desired. I thought really? that... Yeah, I mean, he was just um, a little too regal, I guess. It would have been nice to have seen him be more of a monster, and he was more of a polished gentleman. And I know, yeah. uh, you know, that the classic Universal Monster version of him was uh, somewhat like that, but yeah, he just kind of came off as like debonair and, oh, I'm Dracula, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't know. See, for me, I, I, I thought he was more of like a, I thought he was more of like a. It wasn't fun. See, I thought it was because I thought it was like a, a Patrick Bateman. Like, I feel like he plays him like he's like a straight psychopath, you know? Okay. But, but not in that like crazed, like Tuco from Breaking Bad, like, Bleh! right? Sort of way. Like, it's that like controlled, harnessed, like, you know, like he can look into your soul and be like, oh, dude, that man would, that man would physically eat raw flesh. Yes. He would absolutely yeah. eat raw flesh. He is that type of person, right? He's a true sociopath. See, I didn't and really get that from him. I would have liked to have seen more of that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I could tell he was going for like more of a Bella Lugosi style, you know, kind of swab. Uh, ladies man, you know, draws his prey in and all of that by being charming. Um, but a little creepy too, but then, uh, yeah, I just kind of felt like, it just seemed like I, I never really felt threatened by him. I think that's what I'm trying to say. I never really felt like he was a threat. I didn't get the Patrick Bateman reference that you're, that you're going with. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, you know, he does pick up an eight year old girl, uh, by the chin and stare at her in the eyes and call her a bitch, which is pretty crazy. I have but, that in my know. notes. That seems like a bit much. Yeah. That was a bit so much. So I would say that me. he's probably a, a bit of a psychopath and sociopath based on that moment. Um, but yeah. I do understand what you're saying as well. And, we'll and that there. could also be a yeah. function of the screenplay as well. You know, if, if they had given sure. him a little bit more opportunities to really show that because again I thought I do think that he imbued that sensibility and in watching the documentary I can also say that that's what he was going for he was trying to do that he wanted him to be very sort of sinister and psychopathic more of a Hannibal Lecter style yeah exactly vibe yeah correct yeah Yeah. because like it's unfair because all the other monsters like werewolf inherently is this violent ball of rage you know and so we get to see that threat mummy is you know, just falling apart, dead corpse, you know, and, and all the grossness and all of that. Gilman, very much the same. Uh, Frankenstein isn't meant to be threatening as he is, you know, befriends the kids. We're going to get to that next. That's kind of the next scene. As he moves along, he ends up being more like Sloth from the Goonies. Yeah. Um, you know, more of an, a, hey, you guys kind of you know, totally. mentality. And, um, 
you know, uh, is more of a simpleton beast uh, in the way that he was in the films too, you know, misunderstood and all of the things, you know, uh, he's a monster, pitchforks and torches, and he just wants to be loved. So um, that's Frankenstein's character arc. But then Dracula never really, you know, as someone that's dressed in a cape and the regal uh, Bela Lugosi style outfit, the classic universal monster style Dracula with the slick back hair, um, unless you see him physically like show his teeth and his eyes get all wide in a Nosferatu kind of way, you just are just left with a debonair, suave gentleman that we know is Dracula, but never really establishes himself as such. And that, yes, he calls an eight-year-old a bitch um, as he holds her up and stuff. And so by the end, he does get his redemption as a villain. But um, yeah, he just kind of seems like more of a brainiac mastermind of this whole plotting and scheming using these other monsters as his henchmen, more or less, uh, to do his bidding. But I would have liked to have seen a little more like threatening stuff like you know uh, as as those people are going about doing his thing maybe they come in and they see like some dead corpses in the background that he's recently drained for sustenance because he was hungry and maybe wipes his chin he's like yes i needed a snack or something like that like it would have been nice to see even in a kid's movie uh in an innocent way just a little wink and a nod to some dracula shit other than just the bat stuff you know Yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. And I'll touch on that here in just a moment after I talk about this part where the kids do agree to finally fight Dracula. And that's where we get the reveal of scary German guy. And wouldn't you know it? He's really not as scary as it seems, though. There is a nice little moment where or as German as he seems. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like some pie? (laughs) <laughs> and but there, but there is a nice little moment where they do play with that where he shows up and he's like got the knife and he looks menacing and then it turns out that the knife is there to cut some pie for the children and he serves them pie and pepsi and he's actually a super cool guy he also speaks german so he's able to translate the van helsing diary where he is, explains that Wouldn't the you know? amulet is a talisman it's concentrated good and that every hundred years there is a portal or this portal rather is susceptible Uh, to the monsters crossing over. So they need to engage in the ceremony that protects the evil from crossing over. And once again, wouldn't you know it? Gosh, darn it. hundred years ago, exactly to the day that's tomorrow. Wow. So what a quinky dink. What a quinky dink. And so it's up to us right now to find a virgin for this ceremony. Now you mentioned a little bit ago about Dracula. It didn't quite work for you. I will say, You know, again, I have heavy nostalgia glosses on this, but it's that's not to say that I'm not going to be able to be objective and fair about the film. And one of the things I do recognize is that this sort of has a villain problem in the same way that Marvel movies have a villain problem where they're really not given much to work with. They're just kind of there. The heroes get all the screen time. The heroes get all the motivation outside of a very sort of ham-fisted, oh, the bad guy wants this thing to be able to take over the world or whatever realm or whatever dimension. But right. It's always yeah. to have control of the world, essentially. And then that's about it, right? And then for the rest of the movie, so like Gilman, for example, Creature from the Black Lagoon, doesn't really have a full-on scary scene. It shows up. It, it it launches the coffin onto the ground with Frankenstein. And then at it, he doesn't show up again until the end of the movie where he crawls out of the sewer, advances on Horace, who just picks up a shotgun that happens to be right there, and shoots him dead. And that's it. So, like, if you were to Easy say, peasy. like, here's the adventure of Gilman, that's a pretty shitty story. 
Guy shows up, gets out of his <laughs> no sewer, is for immediately Bill, shot by a shotgun that happens to be laying on the ground that this kid picks up. That That's not a fun, interesting story. Not but, at all. Especially for what Homeboy had to go through to get in that fucking costume and shit. Exactly. I'm sure you saw that. We're going to talk. Yeah, so I was going <laughs> to mention the fact that, like, of all of the costumes, that one is my favorite. And part of it, I think, is because it was two newbies who had never been tasked with anything before. Winston hired them and gave them this opportunity because they were talented. And talented they were, but they didn't really understand the ramifications of makeup in terms of how it was going to affect the actor. So they basically made a, it was actually a two piece suit. That was essentially a one piece suit where you had the entire body as one latex part. And then the head is another. And the head had two very, very modest pinholes in it that you really couldn't see through at all. And then they glued the head to the body so that there was no seams to be found (laughs) anywhere in the costume. What could go wrong? Yeah. The problem is that the actor could not get out of the suit for 12 hours and there was yes. no place to use the bathroom. There was no way to eat, drink, whatever. So this guy had to not use the bathroom or just use the bathroom and go on his own self for 12 hours and also just have giant gobs of sweat inevitably from being trapped in this latex suit. I do not envy him at all. And if anything, he's probably the biggest trooper in this entire film. Yeah. I almost wonder if they didn't cut his part a little short because the the whole thing was just so shitty. They're like, dude, we got to get this guy out of here. Yeah, right. Just shoot him. Shoot me. (laughs) Oh, shit. The union rep's here. Quick, quick. Ran the scene. Right, yeah. And wrapped. And that's it. That's Gilman, everybody. Gilman, yes. Let's get him out of that. Yeah, no, no, right now, yeah. Let's get him out of that. Just like we were planning to. Just like we were planning to, Union Rep. All the time. All the time. Yeah, it's in the script. (laughs) And now, as far as the film going back, the other thing it does nice with the introduction of Frankenstein to Phoebe is there's a nice reference to the original old school black and white Frankenstein where she's sitting there pulling flowers by a lake and he just kind of wanders in there and very quickly she realizes she being Phoebe the main character's younger brother from earlier or younger sister rather realizes that this Frankenstein character is actually quite nice and so monster with a heart of gold yeah She then introduces Frankenstein to her family and friends. All of them panic except for her brother, Sean, who is willing to sack up a little bit, goes and says hello. They find out he's a nice guy, so they accept him and Phoebe, both of them, into their club. Again, you know, he's that gentle giant sort of character. They become friends very quickly. Along the way, Dracula finds the location of the amulet, and this spurs one of our favorite mainstream 80s movies devices which is the montage 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 (laughs) good old good old classic montage and the funny thing is that like rudy really gets the bulk of the montage most of the montage is rudy making the weapons he's making wooden stakes he's making silver bullets both of these in shop class He's also stealing a bow and arrow from an archery range that he happened to just find or whatever. We've also got a very little moment where Eugene writes a letter to the military in crayon saying, hey, there's some monsters here. Please help. <laughs> this is actually yep. going to come back at the end. And then uh, we've also got to get one of, those, <laughs> one of the 80s tropes that you couldn't get away with where all of the kids in Frankenstein are. Looking at the exposed pictures, and I do mean exposed pictures of Patrick's sister, 
that Rudy happened to take was when he was in the treehouse earlier. Very sort By the of way, Porky's moment again. Fucking awesome treehouse. We haven't yeah, even spoke on cool. that. Like I've, I, I miss, you know, it's really sad that, you know, that that doesn't exist anymore. That kids don't really have tree houses or go out and build tree. When I was a kid that age, we used to go out and actually build tree houses. I had access to a lot of scrap wood and stuff laying around. My dad was uh, in construction, so uh, I could go, you know, forage for supplies and neat little things and use my imagination. Like this would make a cool, you know, periscope or, you know, peephole or any number of things that, you know, and then, you know, it became like Goonies. It's our time up here, you know? And uh, once you're in your treehouse, that was your little uh, fortress of solitude, if you will. And um, everybody kind of, I mean, there you always had a, a tree on someone's property that you could uh, operate on and, and make yeah. said treehouse um, in someone's backyard. But I feel like that's uh, not so cool anymore. Kids don't need treehouses. Yeah, no, nah, dude. They're like, hey, uh, I built a Minecraft treehouse that's way doper than this. So, And it probably was. Yeah, also got probably horses was. and pigs and shit that I can play with, too. So. <laughs> yeah. I should, uh, I may go build a treehouse, like just out of nostalgia <laughs> for the Monster Squad. Yeah, I got a tree. I could do it. It can be done. I think it was also one of those things where, like, you know, dads were more than happy to get some alone time. It's like, I'm going to spend all day up here. Like, okay, honey, oh, I'm sure going to miss you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, you want any yeah, smokes? Beard football, bro. <laughs> Let's go. I'll, I'll supply you with cigarettes Can and we beer. sleep up here? Absolutely yeah, you can. Right. I'm going to miss you, sweetheart. With a little luck, they'll uh, find, find some Playboys, and I won't even have to have the talk with them. You know, they'll just teach themselves, figure it all out up there in the old treehouse, and uh, come back down to be a man. Absolutely. <laughs> And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Now see here, gentlemen, settle down now. The prestigious order of the Monster Hunting Consortium is hereby in session. Hear, hear! Let me first thank you for joining me here during this, the evening of the full moon. Despite many strange occurrences, we can all take solace in the fact that each of us is in the presence of the most esteemed monster hunters that our beloved Lady England has to offer. Long live the Queen! Long live my cat! Cats make the best rulers. Egypt told us this. Gentlemen, before we read last week's minutes, it has come to my attention that Mr. Cheney has a matter of utmost import that he wishes to discuss post-haste. Mr. Cheney, I yield you the podium, sir. With gratitude, Headmaster. Gentlemen, it is with no buoyancy of heart that I bring about this most urgent matter. As you all recall, on the heels of a recommendation by our most esteemed Mr. Van Helsing, it was determined that this order's next target should be that of a werewolf. It ain't all my chickens! I saw it shopping for discount cheese! I just assumed we was dressing the wildlife in fancy linens. Yes, well... There really is no sense in pursuing such nonsense as a werewolf when Count Dracula sits high atop his perch in Transylvania. And so here tonight, I wish to formally lodge an objection. Objection. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, an objection. Oh! oh! <coughs> uh, an objection. Yes, werewolf. Order! Order! What is the meaning of this? I do apologize, Mr. Van Helsing. I believe I had some discount cheese stuck in my throat just now. I mean for this objection. Yes, well, uh, the whole werewolf nonsense just seems a bit... Uh, <laughs> a bit silly now, doesn't it? Did you just snarl? Nonsense. Merely a sniffle. 
A man without a powerful sneeze is no man at all. My father used to scare me every time he went archew. I went half me life thinking a sneeze was how the French say I love you. Gentlemen, it is with no ease of voice that I dare say the whole reason for Mr. Cheney's objection is that he himself is the werewolf. I don't know about that. Order, I say, order. A werewolf? That's preposterous. Just because I prefer rare meat and use my hind legs to scratch my neck means nothing of the sort. A man who doesn't eat rare meat is no man at all. My cat, Mr. Whiskers, loves raw meat. I brought it with me here today, I did. I once adopted a cat that turned out to be a badger. Scratch me in the balls, he did. Been seven years, still don't piss straight. Did you say your cat was here with you? Certainly. Mr. Whiskers loves people. No, my greatest fear must resist, but can't. See? Do you all see what I mean? Mr. Cheney, what is the meaning of all this running around? Control yourself, good sir. He can't control himself. He is a favorite. We've got to find some silver alloy and put him down for good. He chased that cat right through the window, he did. Mr. Whiskers! His veterinarian said that he wasn't supposed to get eaten. I ate a cat once. Kind of gamey, really. But I'd eat one again. Gentlemen, order! Order, gentlemen! I'm coming for you, Vevulf! I wonder if we'll ever have a meeting that doesn't end with someone smashing a window. Me mum says eyes are the window to the soul. She's also blind, if that changes anything. If he doesn't eat that cat, is it okay if I do? Now, now, that is quite enough. Now everyone just settle down. We have a meeting to proceed with. (sighs) I do hope Mr. Cheney is able to figure out what is wrong with him. He gets this way every full moon. Now, Mr. Tiggs, if you will, please read the minutes. And now, back to the show. Now, in the film, we've got the first sort of big set piece, and this is after a quick shot of the wolfman turning into the wolf as in a phone booth. We just get sort of a, a quick go from uh, left to right, quick cut there, works very effectively. And this is where they go to actually Dracula's house. Now, there is a quick scene where they establish that supposedly Lisa, Patrick's sister, is a virgin. So they've recruited her to do the incantation. And then after that, again, they're going to Dracula's house. And after some protestation from Horace, they still enter. And there's a nice little exciting showdown where we get all of them sort of in the middle of a hallway. They're being attacked by the monsters. They're flanked by Wolfman in one direction, Dracula in another direction, the Brides of Dracula in another direction. And then this is where we get the infamous uh, Wolfman's Got Nards line where they're basically like, what do we do? And he's like, kick him in the Nards. And they're like, what? Is a kick Wolfman in the Nards. Wolfman doesn't have Nards. Yes, he does kick him. So he kicks him. Wolfman grabs his Nards and he goes, oh, Wolfman's Got Nards. And that's probably like the most famous you know, line from the entire film. And they're still... They're able to escape, but they find themselves at the back of another hall. They turn around. They see that there is a bronze statue of an explorer or someone. You know, the arms all stick it up there, and they grab it, pull it down. It turns out that it works. There's a trap floor underneath them. They drop out, and they're able to go to the area wherein they find the amulet. 
Dracula's there. He's going to attack them. But once again, very conveniently, we don't need to explain why, but it turns out that all along this entire time, Horus has been carrying a piece of garlic pizza. And so, again, great opportune time for him to bust out that garlic pizza and jam it off the side of Dracula's face, which burns and actually leaves a, a very... Very realistic looking wound, Mark. You know, that's the thing about these practical effects, man. Whether it's just like a wound on the face or it's Dracula in a half human, half bat shot phase, Wolfman exploding and coming back together. Like all of these practical shots are so well done and still literally 35 years later holding up, which is insane. Yeah. No, they treated this seriously on a lot of levels. It was uh, nice to see and it made it easier to watch because this could have been... And, you know, and maybe that's where the 12 mil went, you know, like they actually did take this seriously with the makeup yeah. effects and all of that. Um, I would have liked to have seen a little, you know, what's really interesting is that then that means that maybe the part that I feel like this fell short on is the writing, which could have yeah. been, which, you know, is the one part with Shane Black on board you would think would have excelled. But Okay, uh, but Shane Black's also 24. This is, ve- this could very well be his first script. I believe it is. Okay. Yeah. And if and he they sold it at twenty four, exactly. You know, he's in but his Lethal early Weapon 20s. came out this same year, and he starred in Predator the same year, all within two months of each other. So it was like Predator, this, and then Lethal Weapon, all back to back to back. So yeah. he was kind of on the uptick, you know. Yeah, one of the things that Fred Decker actually said is he's like, it would have been really nice if Lethal Weapon had come out two months earlier. Because then on the posters, we could have written put from the writer of Lethal Weapon, and they really feel like that would have done a lot to move some tickets, which it probably would have. It was a huge movie. Do you know if Shane Black kind of disowned this movie at all because he had it sandwiched in between – he had like, like a flop sandwiched in between uh, you know Predator and – and Lethal Weapon? No, they actually do interview him on the documentary that I oh, watched. Oh, they do? Okay. Yeah, they actually Got have it. him in there. I get the sense that it was something he did that's like, honestly, dude, it's probably like the way we feel about our student films, right? Like, am sure. I proud of him? Yeah, absolutely. Does it reflect where I am today? Not even a little bit. Right, but in the t- at the time, yeah. if you have two major blockbusters come out back to back, and then this huge, weird indie kid flop, you know, that would be the one that you'd be like, Ixnay on the Monster Squad. No, but it's a good movie. <laughs> I think they I think they all recognize that it's a good movie. It just didn't do okay. well, you know? So, I was but yeah, curious. but, it, but, uh, but it, it definitely didn't seem like he was you hanging his hat on it either. Jason. We'll still let you like it. No. <laughs> now, we've got the film sort of wrapping up at this point. We've got the kids in German guy. They meet in town center. And well, right before that, actually, we've got the scene where the, with the mummy. So uh, they they sort of meet up, and they're all in this like jeep sort of thing that the German guy's driving, and the mummy is there, and he's walking by, and as they pass by, he grabs hold of the back of the car, and he's hanging on as they fly around. He's trying to attack the kids who are all screaming. We've got Rudy. I love that scene. It's a really good one, and Rudy is able to grab the bow and arrow. And he fires an arrow through one of the mummy's bandages, hits a tree. And then as the car continues forth, it starts unraveling. And soon before you know it, the entire mummy has unwrapped, leaving a skull. And uh, Rudy gets to lay down a one-liner that I'm sure was super badass 35 years ago where he says, See you later, Band-Aid Breath. 
<laughs> so good. <laughs> so those are some of the elements that do retain some of that childlike atmosphere. And and the writing definitely reflects that. But the one thing I, I will say, and, and I think it works as well, is that Shane Black and Fred Decker both, because basically Shane Black wrote it and then Fred Decker went and did like touch-ups and such. So they wanted it to feel the dialogue that is, they wanted it to feel like children speaking, right? So, you know, we're not going to have them make some erudite reference to, you know, 18th century history or whatever, because these are 13 year old kids. What would 13 year old kids say? Something like, see you later, Band-Aid breath. So, sure, you know, easy to criticize at damn near 40 years old. But, uh, you know, that's probably how kids spoke. And especially, you know, back then or, you know, there wasn't as much exposure to, you know, literature, art and all this sort of stuff. Now, that's a super cool scene. We've also got Dracula who shows up, and now he's starting to show a little bit more of that malevolent side where he finds out that the kids have this treehouse and straight shows up with dynamite. And because this is an 80s movie, what do you do when you have dynamite? You say a one-liner and walk away from the thing as it explodes. It's missing the slow motion, (laughs) but everything else is right there. So he shows up with the dynamite, says... Meeting adjourned and then throws it and walks away as the treehouse explodes <laughs> behind him. And that's exactly what you did in 1987 filmmaking, goddammit. Oh, man, yes. Uh, <laughs> dude, there's so many opportunities. What's something cooler that he could have said than meeting adjourned? Um, <laughs> what? I don't know, Maybe you like, tell me. Let me think. <laughs> you're... you're your bark is worse than my bite. Because <laughs> it's a tree. So there's bark, right? Uh, that would no, totally I, work. Yes, thank you for explaining it. It was, it was, it was difficult <laughs> and subtle. Your you bark is worse than my bite. Uh, he throws a match. <laughs> Slow motion, walk away. Cape flies in the wind. Yeah, dude, that's dope. <laughs> oh, if only they could go back and, and have it back and do it all again. Yes. Yes. So now we do actually go to the town center. Uh, the kids find a church, and that's where Lisa, the sister, starts her incantation. And then we get the brides of Dracula who arrive in the middle of the street. This was always one of like my favorite sequences growing up, just because there's something about the brides that's so simple, effective, and creepy. And so Rudy sure. decides that he's going to be the one to deal with them, goes out with the crossbow, stake through the heart of the first one. Second one gets a little close. He's able to jam it through her. And we also from there see dad. Dad drives in. He sees Dracula there. And actually at that point, too, we get a very sort of quick dismissal of his cop partner. He has this partner who's always kind of like cracking wise. And he is in one of the cars when the dad shows up screeching. And Dracula has more dynamite that he lights and chucks under the car to blow up that guy in his car as well. So we get back-to-back explosions here. When uh, Dad fires at Dracula, that's when he turns into a bat, which is the perfect opportune time for Mom to come out and see the transition and him fly away. Now she knows that something's been going on the whole time and everything just got a little bit more complicated with regards to their relationship. And then after that, we get my favorite part. I I don't know if it's everyone's favorite part or not, but with the Wolfman where uh, the – so dad actually did shoot Dracula as he was a bat. And he ends up – Dracula, that is, crashing into a building. And we get a very cool shot 
of him in a half man, half bat phase, sort of glued to the ground, like writhing and trying to get up. And the cop dad is going to say something or he's going to kill him when Wolfman comes from the back and attacks him. Now, Dracula is subdued. So what does dad do? Grabs yet some more dynamite, lights it, sticks it in the waistband of the Wolfman, pushes him out a window, at which point the damn thing explodes midair and the Wolfman's body parts all go flying in different directions. Now, you'd think that might destroy him, but it didn't. Because it's not a silver bullet and only a silver bullet will kill him. So what happens? All of those parts come flying back together, sucking into one another and recreating the Wolfman in his form. And Ryan, I think that these are the types of parts that this movie is living for. You can tell that they just loved the practical effects, loved playing with the monsters. And again, like it's such... You know, when, when we talk about how practical effects trump CGI all the time, this isn't just us being film snobs this is evidential by the fact that you can go watch a movie that was made 20 years ago with heavy cgi and it's unwatchable you you, it's really hard to watch everything just looks so simplistic whereas going back to the monster squad 35 years ago or star wars 45 years ago these all of these practical effects still hold up and they're still enjoyable and they're still going to be in another 20, 30 and 40 years down the road. So this is what I love about the practical effects of this. It makes it feel like an amusement park ride, like those cool lines that Disney and Universal make for Harry Potter and all sorts of cool stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, but though I would also request though, Jason, like stop talking about like how many years ago these movies came, came out. Like it, you're making my life feel like an amusement park ride. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And we, I will say that we have come to this pretty much sort of the end of the film. I mentioned it earlier. This is where we get the, my name is Horace line and Gilman it just exit the sewer approaches Horace who grabs the shotgun. He's locked out of the store by the wonder years, brother jerky guy or whatever. And after Horace effectively kills Gilman, guy's like, hey, fat kid, nice job. To which Horace cocks the shotgun and goes, my name oh, I loved is it. Horace. And we get that like yeah. cool like below like oh, hero shot looking up at him as he cocks the <laughs> shotgun. And my the, name and, is yeah. Horace. And we also, we also get a cut on action where it cuts to that like hero shot as he's cocking the shotgun. Beautifully yeah. done. Beautifully so well. done. Yeah. And it's at this point that Lisa finishes the incantation, at which point the vortex should show up, but it doesn't. And what happens? It turns out that Lisa isn't really a virgin. Some good old-fashioned 1987 slut-shaming as she's no longer to say, able to save the world because she had the gall to have sex with Steve, even though she thinks he didn't count. So who's going to <laughs> who's going to save the day? Ah, Phoebe. We have young little Eugene who wrote the message to the police or the army in crayon. Says, is she a virgin? They look at Phoebe and it's like, yes, yes, she is. So scary, do. scary German Italian guy goes, Phoebe, we need you to save the universe. Repeat after <laughs> me. <laughs> After I finish, I'm making my lasagna. Let's do the curse and the thing with the portal. Yeah. Terrible. And so he Terrible. grabs her. And so obviously she can't read German. He ends up repeating it for her or rather reading it to her. And she's repeating him. And all the while, this is when Dracula 
is starting to approach her because he realizes that, oh, she is a virgin. She can do some damage. And we get the infamous line where he he, he just he's uh, already destroyed a number of police officers. It's a very cool tracking shot following him along the side. He gets to the girl. He knocks back the German guy, picks her up by the face, holds her up in the air, looks her in the eye, and delivers this immortal line. Give me the amulet, you bitch. Now, Ryan, I believe you mentioned that you wrote that that was maybe a little bit much for you in this movie. A little bit much. A little <laughs> bit much. Yeah. Uh, because, look, I'm already on my back foot trying to, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to think of this seven-year-old girl as a virgin. Like, that's just a weird context to put her in uh, in the first place. And then now I will, I will say that it's bitch. less weird if she wasn't. But go ahead. Fair, fair. I'm just, you know what I'm like, but to sexualize this young child in the first place I mean, I and like guess, talk yeah. about or the lack thereof. And then all of a sudden now you're like holding her up and saying, you bitch, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, Jesus. Like, man, these kids have seen some things, but I guess the other kids like smoking and they're all having sex. So who that, I mean, kids, you know? Kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, funny Crazy thing, uh, I will say this is another interesting anecdote from the film. That I don't know seemed a little like I don't know that I would have handled it as a director, but you know got what got the reaction, and that is basically that for that line, and maybe this is actually why they didn't they didn't tell her that that's what he was going to say, and maybe that was the thing is they're like oh you 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 tell the seven year old that Dracula is going to call her a bitch. No, no, you do that. No, I'm the writer. <laughs> no, I'm the director. I'm directing you. No, you're the director. You have to do this. Uh, you know what, uh, Phoebe, uh, we're not going to actually, so he's going to come up and he's going to say something kind of mean and scary. And when he does, we just want you to react to that. So the little girl had no idea what was coming. And not only that, but if you notice when he hisses at her, he's got these like contacts in that you don't okay. really see. And so the very first time that they filmed that scene the young girl did not know what this guy was going to say. The director, Fred Decker, just said, hey, he's going to say something scary. Just react however you would. And he lifts her up and he says the line and then hisses at her. And they said that her fear was so real that she went to scream but didn't. Like her scream got caught in her throat and died out in the middle of it. And oh, so wow. they couldn't capture it. And then we're like – Oh, uh, I'm sorry, sweetie. Uh, we're going to have to do that one more time. So they ended up having to <laughs> go and get it a second time. Um, but you can still see in her face that like that is like very, very real fear. Sure. But, yeah, yeah. Poor, poor girl like was so scared the first time that like literally her scream caught in her throat and couldn't even like come out. Oh, man. Yeah, I would have hate, <laughs> hated to have been the uh, the sound guy on that set. And that uh, I'm a horrible person. <laughs> if, yeah. this, uh, if this movie doesn't do well, I'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so and then but immediately after that, of course, we've got our old buddy Frankenstein. Frankenstein there is is there to protect his friend Phoebe and save the day. He grabs Dracula turns him around, looks him in the eye, and says, bogus, in a, in a, in a truly t Bill and Ted sort of way, and knocks him back, <laughs> at which point he goes flying and lands on a wrought iron gate spike that is driven through his heart. Now, here's the thing. Does some damage, but still not a wooden stake, so this doesn't actually kill him, 
but it does allow time for the vortex to open and start swallowing all of the monsters. And Frankenstein's trying to hang on for your dear life. So is Dracula, but Van Helsing is there. And Van Helsing reaches out from the vortex and grabs Dracula and wrestles him back into the vortex to take him back. But not before looking at the kids and giving them a big thumbs up to let them know that they did I a love okay the thumbs job. up. <laughs> the thumbs up is in my notes. Absolutely. <laughs> and then the, okay. Yeah, the kid looks back and gives them a thumbs up as well with all of the wind blowing in their face and them hanging on for dear yeah. life. Fuck yeah, Van Helsing. We did it together. Yeah. And we also get a, a nice little tender moment of Phoebe, you know, crying for Frankenstein not to go because she's his friend and she doesn't want him to go. And the music actually swells very nicely and sort of reinforces that moment. And then she ends up throwing him her stuffed bear. It's a very sweet little moment that he takes back with her. And when the vortex closes, all is well. And who would arrive but the army? The army all of a sudden arrives, and they're like, hey, where's Eugene? We got your message. And it's like, (laughs) wow, that sure is a lot of people for a hand-drawn crayon message from a seven-year-old. But you do get the sense that, again, you know, this is a a kid in his 20s just kind of playing around with stuff and not taking it too seriously. And that's, of course, when we get our Hallmark, two, two consecutive Hallmarks of 80s films to close us out, which is where the very last line is the protagonist saying the name of the film, followed immediately by the custom hip-hop song that is also the title of the movie. (laughs) So, you know, uh, who are you guys, the general asks. And, you know, Sean looks around and then looks back at him and says, we're the monster squad. And then, do-do-do-do-do-do-boo. Right. And then you get like, we're the monster squad, hip and hop, bam, whatever shit. (laughs) (laughs) This was when, uh, yeah, suburban culture was trying to co opt uh, urban (laughs) culture and they didn't know how to do it yet. Like they've kind of figured it out somewhat. But yeah, you, this was, um, what was the itchy and scratchy uh, cartoon with the Poochie? Was it Poochie? With the yes, dog, absolutely. and he was like, had the skater shades on and all that. And then right after that, we had the Bartman, you know, uh, <laughs> do the Bartman, you know. Um, yeah, th- that's what all of this reminded me of. It also had a very, very uh, uh, mid-80s Super Bowl shuffle vibe. I don't know if you remember the Super Bowl <laughs> shuffle. It's yeah. Super Bowl shuffle. Yes, of course I remember the, this. Bowl whoever shuffle. was doing this could not rap for shit. He's just like uh, documenting things that happened in the movie Spoken over a hip hop beat of some kind. Yeah. And, you know, that brings us to the end of the infamous 80s classic, The Monster Squad. So really enjoyable movie. Again, you know, for me, it's just 100 percent nostalgia glasses. There's, you know, there's definitely problems with the film and aspects that don't make it great, but it's just a super fun romp. And again, you know, it's near and dear to my heart. It's any of those films that we all have that we grew up with that, you know, when you watch later, you're like, ah, you know, it's. But I will say that, like, 
this movie actually is much much better than a lot of those movies that I go back to. Sure, you know, I will agree. Um, with I you think on it that. still yes. holds up today. I think anybody can watch it. Like, yes, it's definitely got a kids vibe, but again, just on the strength of the practical effects, the costumes, yeah. the production design, the makeup. The you know it's it's solidly acted it's you know it's got a it's it's well directed it's got great pacing so yeah all in all a very very solid movie so it's an hour and twenty minutes it's not gonna waste <laughs> your time yeah go you watch can it. give it you can give it the 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 eighty two minutes you've got right. eighty two minutes. Now, before we get into our three adjectives and final ratings, do want to remind you all to go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to us, as well as hit us up with some reviews. We'd love to get some more reviews going. It really helps spread awareness of this program. And if you enjoy what we're doing here, that's the best way that you can help us out. Now, Ryan, I'll go ahead and defer to you first, which I know is always a little dangerous because sometimes you do steal my adjectives. But regardless, go ahead and give us your three adjectives for the Monster Squad. I mean, th- there probably will be very similar to yours because uh, there's only so much you could say about this. But uh, I, I do have um, uh, nostalgic because, of course, you know, it's it's a nostalgic film. Uh, not, uh, you know, for, for all the reasons we talked about. Uh, yeah, just moving on. Uh, the next one is Romp because it's a fun romp. Like, just go watch this movie. There's no reason to not have seen. If you have not seen this movie, it still holds up today. Like Jason said, um, it's it's a fun film. It doesn't waste too much of your time and uh it's you know unfortunate that this doesn't have more of a platform like you know you can go rent this but this isn't something that you're going to see on like tbs on a sunday or something like yeah. that like i i wish that uh you know that this was more accessible i probably would have seen this by now but you have to go to it it's not going to come to you go see this movie the third one is time capsule um, in a different way, because nostalgia, yes, for all the 80s tropes and stuff. But this was a time capsule for me for just the lifestyle, like free range parenting. I love free range parenting. Like I remember being able to just go off with my friends on our bikes and be home by dark when the street lights came on. And, you know, uh, just the way that, uh, you know, that that era allowed you to be so free and, and it was worry free. And, um, you know, we weren't sitting in front of television because there was, you know, only so many channels and, um, you know, I didn't have a video game system back then and all of that. So there were so many reasons just to go outside and go play and be kids and, uh, you know, cops and robbers and the whole thing have Nerf guns and all of the things. So yeah, it was a, it was a, a nostalgic, uh, film from a cinematic standpoint, but it also was a time capsule for me and a bit of a throwback to that era. Uh, and it did it very, very well. How about you, buddy? I love how 45 minutes ago, you're like, dude, can you like stop bringing up all the aging stuff? It's making me feel old. <laughs> now you're like, ah, I'm free range parenting when I can just go out and play with my friends. <laughs> We had something called fresh air. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, uh, I actually did have one of those verbatim, which is nostalgic. The other two I have, again, we can make this quick, is brisk and fun. I have a brisk, fun, and nostalgic. That's like the perfect way to encapsulate this movie. You know, again, it's not something if you're going to time encapsulate it. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah see see it to remember the universal monsters see it to remember what 80s movies featuring preteens used to feel like brisk fun and nostalgic now we're gonna go yeah. ahead and give our formal ratings if this is your first time listening i give a star rating out of five ryan gives a grade rating f through a plus 
We'll go into the, why we do that at some other episode. But Ryan, please give us your grade rating for the Monster Squad. I'm giving this a B. Nice. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to give it any less. It's a it's a fun movie. Um, it's not a status. I mean, let's get real here. Like maybe if for you, like if you tell me right now you're going to give this four and a half stars or five stars or whatever, dude, go for it. It's your party. I'm here to celebrate you. Uh, this is <laughs> this is a fun movie. And I think that th- that a lot of people would mark this up if they had seen this as a kid. And then you get to see it again and you're like, oh, man, dude, I love that movie. Yeah. Um, but I didn't ha- I unfortunately did not have that, you know, knee jerk response to this film because this was the sure. first time I've seen it. So if you're going to ask me as a you know, old man uh, <laughs> to give it a rating, I'm going to tell you it's a B movie for me. And I, I think that it deserves every bit of that. How about you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, younger me would absolutely give this seven stars out of five. Right. (laughs) If I was asking if you were asking me, you know, what does this film mean to you personally? Yes, I would give it five stars in trying to be at least somewhat objective. I am giving it four and a half stars. You're probably right. Honestly, like if I hadn't seen this movie first time walking into it, it's probably a four star movie as an adult. I will say I will say even on a first time viewing that score does go up as your age goes down for sure. So okay, again, if you're on the younger side of things, you're gonna like this movie more than if you're a little bit older. But I'm not still, everybody can appreciate <laughs> it, right? Even yes, uh, even I Kenneth- have a lot of love for this movie. I I don't have a bad word to say about it. I just think there are better, you know, movies that deserve that higher rating. But this is a great movie. Yeah, I have no, nothing bad to say about it. The yeah. Mummy was great. Wolfman was great. The kids were great. It was an hour and 20 minutes. Didn't waste your time. It was fun. And, uh, you know, and, and it, it hit all the notes. Um, you, like you said, I, I did have a bit of a villain problem. There's a couple of things that, you know, could have maybe chalked it up a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it was what it was. Absolutely, yeah. Even Kenneth Turin, the infamous Los Angeles Times critic back in the day, was a champion of this film and said that, you know, basically it just makes you feel like a kid again, right? And so it's definitely that's that's the that's kind of the bulk of the response here, right? Is if you're just looking for something light, again, it's a kid's movie, so to speak, but with a sort of adult veneer, a lot of fun. Do go ahead and check out the Monster Squad. And we would also like to invite you to come check us out. Right. We're uh, on the internets and elsewhere. So we do have the social medias at Esoterica Cinema. You can reach out to us on your favorite one and see if we're there. We probably are. And we've also got an email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. We would love to have you reach out and let us know what you think about the Monster Squad, what you think about our review of the Monster Squad, what you think about any of the movies that we've looked out here on this show. We invite you to come and start a discussion with us at esotericacinema at gmail.com. Or you can also check us out on the website. If you go to the website, we'll have some direct messaging that you can employ there. And there's just a lot of good stuff for you to check out. If you're not listening to the episodes on the website, we do have a player there with the last four episodes right on the main page. There's a separate link to a dedicated web player, so you can just listen right through Safari or Chrome. And one of the other things that we have on there is the master list, our master list of all 200 films that we consider in a given season that we pull from at the end of every episode to see what the next movie we are going to watch is. So let's see, Ryan, this film is 13 of 20 for season three. So we've got seven more films to go here. As always, we are going to use our true random number generator to select a number 
from the list. So if you want to play along, as long as you're not driving, go ahead and go to esotericacinema.com. Scroll down to the master list and let's see what number we have here. So you ready to do this, Ryan? I am. All right. Random.org. True number generator. One through 200. We find that we have come to the number 16. 16 right at the top. So we come in here to 16. Okay. Interesting. Interesting film. I remember this is one that you threw on. And uh, I've I've never seen this film. I believe it's more of a somber film. Now let's look at the two films above and below that we didn't get. The uh, at number fifteen, we have Terrence Malick's first film, Badlands, which I have not seen. I do like Terrence Malick, but I didn't like Days of Heaven, so I have no idea if I'm going to like his first film. The other film after that is the head trip film, from what I understand, Beyond the Black Rainbow, which I would have loved to get down and dirty on some head trip sci-fi, but no. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, yeah, we will. Instead, we are going to look at uh, what I, again, I believe it's a a rather somber and emotional film, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Do you have a description for us, Ryan? I do. Google has this described as, six-year-old hush puppy lives with her father, Wink, in a remote Delta community. Wink is a stern taskmaster, but he is preparing his young daughter for the end of the world. When Wink falls mysteriously ill, nature seems to fall ill with him. Temperatures rise, the ice caps melt, and fearsome prehistoric beasts called aurochs run loose. Rising waters threaten to engulf their community, sending Hush Puppy in search of her long-lost mother. Released in 2012, yeah, I, uh, I don't know a whole lot about this. I remember this getting a lot of critical acclaim back in the day. Yeah, um, same. So this has kind of just been one that's... Been on my radar for a while. Uh, but this guy went on to go make films like Wendy, which uh, I think is also on our list. I really want to see that, too. That was kind of a realistic Peter Pan film. Um, and uh, I heard that was pretty decent. So, yeah, this guy kind of uh, rolls in the uh, world of the fantastical or whimsical, I think. So, um, yeah, I'm excited for this one. Definitely. Same here. So if you would like to watch ahead of next week, be sure to check out Beasts of the Southern Wild. As for today, thank you so much for joining us here on Esoterica Cinema for The Monster Squad. Really hope that you enjoyed the film, whether or not you grew up with it or not. As always, we will catch you next time on Esoterica Cinema. Enjoy the movies.